0: You guys ready to dig into God's Word this morning? Amen. Well, we are going to continue as the announcement video said in the Gospel of John. And we are going to look at three verses, just three short verses. uh, But I promise you that is not a preview of a potential short message. um, Just because there's three verses. Never believe that when I'm up in the pulpit. uh, But it's going to be some profound truths that we are going to look at here today. And so we're, we're, we're going to look at... We're in a kind of a transition period, so Pastor Dom last week preached about the account of the cleansing of the temple, and uh, Pastor Dom, I don't, he's not here at the, at the moment, I wish he'd be able to be here to, for y'all, for him to hear the thanks that you guys are going to give him, but then he did an amazing job this last week, he really did an amazing job, um, I need to get my, my jump down like Pastor Dom does, and he gets excited, but that wouldn't be me, that's Pastor Dom. And so he is an amazing preacher, and we're thankful that we have a great team of preachers that preach here at Living Word Church. I mean, that's not myself included. That's the other great preachers. <laughs> All right, so we are, we're, we're preaching a message this morning. I'm preaching a message this morning called God's Perfect Knowledge. God's Perfect Knowledge. Would you, would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning, and, and we thank you for the privilege of gathering and worshiping. Lord, may we never take it for granted that we get to gather and to worship. And I just pray that as we are opening your word, we're going to look at these three verses in John chapter 2. Three short verses, but profound truths that we're going to dig out of the text of Scripture. And I just pray that as we, as we study your word, I pray that all of our hearts would come to know and to love you more than we know and love you now. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me this morning to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God's perfect knowledge. God's perfect knowledge. So have you ever been around somebody that you stood in awe of because of their knowledge? I mean, I just think of many different people in my life, different situations. I was watching this video the other day, and it was of Sean McVay. He's the the coach of the uh, Los Angeles Rams who just won the Super Bowl. And they were doing a, a, a interview with him, this sports reporter was, and they were asking him situational plays that actually happened in time previously in the past and asking him if he knew what happened for that play. And so they did it that year and they just gave the down and distance, the time on the clock, you know, and they said, what, what happened right here? And he would spout off the play. He would just say the play. And, and then, then, then they asked him, what, what happened? Who caught it? You know, what, and he would know everything that happened. They went that year. Then they went back and they picked random plays from the previous year. They went as far back as three or four years previous and down in distance, here's the date, here's the stadium, here's the game, down the distance, time on the clock, what happened? He would name the play. Wow is right. Sean McVay, that's a lot of knowledge. Have you ever been around somebody that has a lot of knowledge and understanding about things and they know that they have a lot of knowledge and understanding about things and they just ooze with pride? How does that make you feel? Like, ugh, you don't, want, you don't want to know their knowledge. You don't, want to, you don't want them to talk to you about their knowledge because it just comes across that they know a lot. Have you ever been around somebody who thinks they know a lot, but they really don't? Maybe they're the children that live in your house, <laughs> and you, especially those teenagers, those aliens from another planet. <laughs> well, We're going to talk today not about Sean McVeigh, Not about somebody who who thinks they know a lot and they're filled with pride, but we're going to talk about somebody who has perfect knowledge. God has perfect knowledge. And as I said earlier, we are in between the cleansing of the temple and two conversations that are actually going to be perfect illustrations of this message. So this message that I'm going to preach here this morning is going to tee it up for two conversations that Jesus is going to have, one in John 3 with Nicodemus and one in John 4 with a Samaritan woman. And we're going to see put on display in John 3 and John 4 in these two conversations over the next few weeks, God's perfect knowledge on display. But this section in these three verses are going to set up the next two weeks that we're going to look at, the next two or three weeks of God having a conversation with two people, a man and a woman. And he's going to demonstrate his perfect knowledge. But we see his perfect knowledge here. So let's look at John 2, the text we're going to cover. We'll read the verses and we will unpack what God wants to say to us through his word. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Wow. It's really profound things we're going to bring out of this text. You know that when we when we preach the God's word, you know what we're doing when we preach God's word, when we go verse by verse, as we do here at Living Word, what you what we're doing is, is we're digging out of the text. We're mining. There's jewels inside the Word of God. Do you believe that? There's jewels inside the Word of God. So it can be 15 verses. It could be five verses. It could be three verses. It could be two sentences, one word. But the goal is to dig into the text and to mine the jewels out of the Word of God so that I can present the jewels of the Word of God and you can look at all the many facets of it and you can stand in awe of our God. That's the job of a preacher. If you ever sit under preaching and that's not what they're doing, listen to somebody else. Amen? So two profound realities from this short section and one main implication. Two profound truths about our God, about his perfect knowledge, and one main implication. So here's the first profound reality is this. The perfect knowledge of God reveals what is in man. The perfect knowledge of God reveals what is in man. Now, I underline where it's saying this in these verses. Look back. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people. That word knew or know is not just a, 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 a word that you would say, I met somebody and they're an acquaintance. And I know them. I have knowledge of them. This is the word "new" or know that is used to describe intimacy. Intimacy, deep knowledge. He knew all people. For he himself knew what was in man. How many people, you only know what is on the outside. Right? We know what's on the outside. You get to know somebody, you start knowing them for what is on the inside. You get to know them a little bit more and more. You may have an acquaintance and you know what's on the outside. You know what their words are, what they like, what their actions may be. But if you really start to get to know someone, you begin to know what's on the inside. Well, God knows what is in man without ever having a conversation with anyone. Many believed in his name, but he did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them. He knew what was in them. God has perfect knowledge of what is in us. What is in us, what is in us, is what, is who we really are. What is inside of a person is who they really are. And when when we say what is inside, what we're saying is, is our heart, our desires, our thoughts, our thoughts. He knows what is in us. It reminds me of this section here, also reminds me this truth about God and his knowledge, reminds me of 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 the prophet Samuel going to Jesse's house, and he's going to anoint a new king. He's going to anoint a new king, and so he goes to the house and he asks Jesse, "Where's where's all your sons?" and 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 he looks at the oldest son and, and look at what the text says. Here's this first Samuel sixteen. Uh, Samuel Samuel says, "Surely the Lord's anointed is before him." He looks at the uh, the eldest son. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the, the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Don't look on what you see on the outside, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the, on the heart. I mean, we don't have X ray vision like Superman has. You know when you remember you watch Superman and, and he could look and have X ray vision, look through a wall, right? Well, God has far greater attributes and x-ray vision like Superman he cannot just he can not only just look through walls or walk through walls as we're going to look at later on in this message but he can he, he can see into the heart of man there's only one person who can really know the heart of a person in perfection and that is God why because God has perfect knowledge God has perfect knowledge what does it mean that God has perfect knowledge. Well, there's a, there's a theological word. There's a, an attribute of God that would describe his perfect knowledge. It's called the omniscience of God. The omniscience of God. And it, it, it simply means that omniscience simply means all knowledge. Omni, science. Omni meaning all. Uh, si, uh, uh, omniscience, science meaning knowledge. All knowledge. The omniscience of God. And here's a definition of the omniscience of God. When we say that God is omniscient, it means that he has perfect knowledge of all things. He does not have to learn anything. He has not forgotten anything. God does not have to reason things out, find things out, or learn them gradually. He knows everything that has happened and everything that will happen. God even knows those things that humankind has yet to to discover. This knowledge is absolute and unacquired. The omniscience of God means that he has perfect knowledge, perfect understanding, and perfect wisdom as to how to apply this knowledge. God knows everything. He knows what is in man. He, he, it, he reveals, his knowledge reveals what is in man. He knows the secrets of the heart and mind. Scripture affirms it. Look like at what Psalms 139 says. We see it in, in, in John 2, but we see in the Old Testament in the Psalms 139 The psalmist says, "O Lord, you have searched me and what? Known me. How does he know us? You know when I sit down and you know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. He knows my thoughts. You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. All together. Think about that type of knowledge. Wouldn't you like that knowledge if in, in in your marriage? Wives for your husbands. You try to get them to talk, but they don't, they don't. want to talk. Wouldn't it be nice if you had perfect knowledge? Even before the words were on his tongue, you could know the you could know what he's thinking. Or 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 or, or husbands for wives. I, I think there was a movie. Uh, what women want. Uh, I. I don't recommend them. I don't know if I've ever seen it, but I just know the title, What Women Want. Wouldn't it be nice, guys, if you know what your wife wants before she says it? God knows everything. He has perfect knowledge. Even before the word is on our tongue to speak it, he knows our thoughts. He knows what is inside of us. You hem me in before and behind and lay your hand on me. Such knowledge. Such knowledge of what? of the perfect knowledge of God is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. That doesn't make sense to us to ever have perfect knowledge of anything or anyone. But this is who our God is. We cannot hide from him. You cannot hide from God. We cannot hide from God. Often we think we can hide from God, don't we? We cannot hide from God. Have you ever tried to play hide and go seek with a four year old? That's about what it's like trying to hide from God. I played hide and so go seek with a four year old because I have a four year old. What does a four year old do when you play hide and go seek? They run and they hide from you. You give them a few seconds and they go hide and, and you're walking around ready or not, here I come. And you hear noises in the background that give you a clue as to where the four-year-old is. So you follow the noise, you follow the clues, you get to the room. And where do you see your four-year-old at? He is under a blanket and he's moving and his feet are sticking out of the blanket. And the top of his head, because he thinks if he covers his eyes, he's not seen. But you see, you see his head, you see his feet. Four-year-olds obviously cannot hide very well. You can find them very easily. In the same way, but different. We cannot hide at all from God. The four-year-old may be able to cover from the eyes down to the knees. And you still can see their feet and their head. But for us, there's nothing we can do to hide from God. God knows all of us. Wow. (laughs) Isn't that terrifying and humbling? What a humbling reality to ponder. We, we often can believe that no one knows the secrets of our heart or our secret intentions. We cannot hide from God's presence or from his perfect knowledge. Our feet hang out of the blanket every time. And that should be something that informs the way in which we live. God knows all of us inside and out. So the question of the text here, as we begin to unpack this text, here's a, here's a great question. What, what is in the hearts of the people spoken of in verse 23 of our main text? Well, the text says in verse 23, it begins with saying that many believed in the name of Jesus because of the signs that they saw. So Jesus is going to talk about what he knows about inside of these people. But to get to that answer we start with verse 23 where it says that many believed because of the signs that they saw. You know, if the verse stopped right there, if we stopped reading right there that many believed in the name of Jesus when they saw the signs, many people would say revival had broken out. I mean, this is revival. I mean, this is an awakening. Signs happen, people believed. Signs happen, people believed. Wow. And for many people, this is the pursuit of their entire Christian life life. Seeking signs. If we only saw signs, then people would believe. How many people are going to fall into the category of Jesus' warning in Matthew 24, and they're deceived by false prophets and false signs because they are sign seekers? Matthew twenty-four twenty-four says this, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray. Jesus also says that a wicked and perverse generation, wicked and adulterous generation seeks after signs. The Pharisees came. Constantly to Jesus and said, show us signs, show us signs, show us something to prove who you are. He continually proved who he was and they continually came and said, give us signs, give us more signs. Jesus even said, you are asking for a sign and you can look at the sky and you can see when rain and bad weather is going to come. But you can't look at the sign that is right in front of your nose and recognize me for who I am. A wicked an adulterous generation seeks after signs, sign seeking. The question is not, and here's where the dialogue always begins to get a little difficult for people. When you start talking about this is people say, well, you're just saying that God can't do miracles. The question is, is not that, is not, the right question is not, can God do miracles? That's not the question. The, the, and the reason it's not the question is because the whole foundation of our faith is because of the single greatest miracle in human history. Which is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. So to say that we don't believe in miracles would say that we, it would be to say that we don't believe in Christ or Christianity. Because to say that we are Christians is to say to a lost and a dying world. That not only did Jesus die on the cross. And not only did they put his body in the tomb. But we believe that three days later he was raised from the dead. Or, or better said, he raised himself from the dead. No one raises himself from the dead but God. We believe in other miracles, don't we? We believe in the virgin birth. That's even as much central to the faith as the resurrection sinless there had to be a sinless spotless lamb that was not stained by the blood of humanity that was sinful the virgin birth leading to the sinless life leading to the christ that was crucified on the cross and then to the resurrection so the question is not can god do miracles god does miracles all the time the question the right question is this will you believe in christ if you never see a miracle that's the right question For those who are sign seekers, the question is, you're seeking signs to affirm your faith so you can really believe in Christ. But will you really believe if you never see a sign? You know, and so one of the things that we look at in the life of Christ is that ultimately Jesus did all these miracles and all these signs. What did they do to him? Crucified him. So I don't know about getting into the sign performing business because that doesn't work well for people. It didn't work well for our Lord. You know the business we need to be in as Christians? It's proclaiming the message of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the greatest miracle of all time. Will you believe if you never see a miracle? Thomas doubted. Didn't Thomas doubt? One of the disciples he doubted. He says, I'll never believe. He heard news of the resurrection, said, I'll never believe unless I can see and I can touch Christ. I want to see. John 20, Jesus walks into a room without using the door. That's a miracle. Anybody ever done that before? (laughs) John 20, then he said to Thomas after he walked in the door, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. What happened with Thomas? He believed because of what he touched and what he felt and what he saw. But Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? This is powerful. Jesus next said, blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. Will you believe if you never see a miracle? So what answered the question back to the question what was in the heart God's perfect knowledge they believed in him because of the great signs that th- they saw Jesus perform what was it in their hearts that Jesus saw and what I believe could potentially be in the hearts of people that are sign seekers what do what do we see I think he saw this he saw a superficial faith based upon what Jesus can do not on who he is It is clear from this text that that the many who believed because of the signs that they saw Jesus perform did not genuinely believe unto salvation. So here's what I'll say. It is possible to believe in Jesus, but to not to believe in him for the right reasons. It's possible to believe in Jesus and these people believed in Jesus, but they did not believe in him for the right reasons. How do we know that? The text says very clearly, look, it says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. When it says that many believed because of the signs, then it says Jesus did not entrust himself to them. The word believe and the word entrust come from the same Greek word. So really, in essence, what the text is saying here is saying that many believed in Jesus because of the signs that he performed, but he did not believe in them. He did not believe in them. He did not believe that their faith in him was genuine he did not entrust himself to them why because he knew what was in their heart that they were sign seekers seeking to follow him for what he could do not for who he is perfect knowledge reveals that in the heart of man so the first profound truth to ponder from this short section is that God knows the heart of man perfectly and that scripture makes it clear that there are some that can say they believe in Jesus but Jesus on his part, does not entrust himself to them. Wow, God's perfect knowledge. He knows all that we are. He knows everything on the inside of us, all of our intention, all of our thoughts, all of our motivations. He is the only one who can rightly judge the heart of man. The perfect knowledge of God reveals what is in man. Now, we're gonna tread into the deep end of the pool, Are you ready? You ready to tread into the deep end of the pool? If you thought that was deep, we're going to go a little deeper. So hang on, buckle your seatbelt. Let's go to the deep end of the pool. Here's the second reality from this text. So powerful. Listen to this. Look at the text, John 2, 24 through 25. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he has perfect knowledge. He knows what is in man. He knows all people. Listen, verse 25. And he needed no one. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Second profound reality in this text is that the perfect knowledge of God is not dependent on any one. Perfect knowledge of God knows all that is in man. And. God in his perfect knowledge and omniscience needs no one to inform him about anything. God, this is the truth about our God. He lacks nothing. Jesus needed no one. Jesus needed no one to give him information about his creation. So I have a question for you. What, what, What is your belief, or I should say, what is our belief concerning God? I would argue that your belief concerning God is the most important question that anyone can seek to answer. Is God as revealed in scripture lacking anything? Is he subservient to anyone? Is he in charge, ruling and reigning his universe that he created? And those that are in it? He needed no one. Another attribute of God that we would talk about would be the aseity of God, or the aseity of God. And this means that he is self-existent, self-sustaining. He's not only omniscient, and he knows all, thing, and he knows all things, but he is self-sufficient, self-sustaining. He needs no one or nothing to do what he does, because he is God. You know, they're, they're, when we're thinking about the perfect knowledge of God and how that interaction happens between us as his creation and him as God with perfect knowledge... There are some people who wrongly believe that God is waiting for us to make decisions so that he can know what to do next. Kind of like a game of chess. Or or some people would even call it maybe the the tunnel of time view or or, or the time machine view of God's knowledge. And it it would be kind of this idea that God is in heaven and he looks down the corridors of time and he looks at your life and my life and the the life of all those uh, that have ever lived and he looks down the tunnel of time and he sees what decisions people will make And based upon what he sees in the tunnel of time, then he begins to interact with his creation and with humanity and with the history uh, and the unfolding of history. And it's the tunnel of time view that God is looking down and then he's making decisions. He's gaining information. He's gaining information. This is not a biblical view of God. This belief is not a biblical view of God. It is not a reflection of scripture. It is a reflection of our humanity. Why is that view a reflection of our humanity? What do we need to do? We need for us to gain knowledge. We have to look down. We have to, we have to get information. We have to Google. We have to tap conversations. We have to have somebody inform us of things that we don't know. But God is not like us. God doesn't have to look down a tunnel of time to, to learn anything. Because he is God. He is God. This belief is a reflection of our humanity. We are the ones who need help to understand. We need more information to help us make decisions. I need to make decisions in my life every day. And I need information to help me make, that, make those decisions. Where do I go consistently to help me make decisions in my life? Where do you go? You go to God's perfect knowledge, which is his word. You go to his word every day, don't you? Or or you go to his word or you go to a godly person who you know is in God's word. I am, have to make decisions every day in my marriage with my kids as a pastor. And I have to learn information so I can gain wisdom so I can make good godly decisions. But the creator of the universe doesn't have to go to anyone to gain knowledge. Jesus needed no one to tell him what was in man. He needs no one. Our temptation is to think that God is like Plato and we can shape him into an image that makes him more like us. Because this view of who God is hurts my brain like I know it hurts your brain, does it not? Because you're thinking about Ukraine. You're thinking about cancer. You're thinking about suffering. You're thinking about the trials that you're walking through and you're thinking God's perfect knowledge, how can it be? But this is what we do. I should say this is what we should not do, but it's what we do. We, when we don't understand through trials and suffering and pain and war and difficulty, we try to take God down from the biblical reality of who he has revealed himself to be. It's a God with perfect knowledge. We try to reduce him down to something that we can fit into a box that makes sense to us. So what we end up doing is we end up despising the transcendent. The high, the holy, the the high view of God. We want a relationship with God that doesn't break out of the box we've created for him to live in. A box where there's no mystery. A box where there's no unanswered questions. A box where there's no difficult passages of scripture. A box where there's no profound doctrinal truths to ponder. Jesus needs no one. He does not Gain knowledge and if we're not careful in the end, we can become like those in Romans 1 that worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Will we, serve and, will we worship and serve a God of our own creation or will we worship and serve a God who needs no one to give him information about anything? Humanity since the beginning has continually worshipped gods of their own making. And this is what I want to do. I want to read a section of scripture to you to illustrate who God says he is. It's a lengthy section. It's Isaiah 40. Listen to the word of God. Let this lengthy section of God declaring to the nation of Israel, his people, who he is. Let it press this weighty truth into our heart. This is not my belief. This is not what I think. This is from God declaring who he is To God's people, listen, Isaiah 40. God is speaking of himself. Who else has held the oceans in his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? Who is able to advise the spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or to teach him? Who has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instruction about what is good? Did someone teach him what is right or show him the path of justice? No, for all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket. They are nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as though it were a grain of sand. All the wood in Lebanon's forest and all Lebanon's animals would not be enough to make a burnt offering worthy of our God. The nations of the world are worth nothing to him. In his eyes, they count for less than nothing. Mere emptiness and froth. To whom can you compare God? What image can you find to resemble him? Can he be compared to an idol formed in a mold, overlaid with gold and decorated with silver chains? Or if people are too poor for that, they might at least choose wood that won't decay and a skilled craftsman to carve an image that won't fall down? Haven't you heard? Don't you understand? Are you deaf to the words of God, the words he gave before the world began? Are you so ignorant? God sits above the circle of the earth. It's not flat, folks. He sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent from them. He judges the great people of the world and brings them all to nothing. They hardly get started, barely taking root. When he blows on them and they wither, the wind carries them off like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Asked the Holy One. Look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by name. Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. Jesus needed no one to tell him anything about what is in man. Wow. God doesn't need defending. He doesn't need repackaging for a modern culture. He doesn't need to be us to apologize for him. He doesn't need help. He doesn't need knowledge. He doesn't need anyone or anything. Why? Because the God who is the creator and sustainer of all things is not dependent on anyone. This is the God we serve. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of creation. Amen. Amen. The perfect knowledge of God reveals what is in man. The perfect knowledge of God reveals. The perfect knowledge of God is not dependent on anyone. Those are the two profound truths that we see in John 2. What are the implications? Really, it's three implications built into one point so that I didn't have to have a a, a five-point sermon. Here's the implication of those two weighty truths that we just looked at. The perfect knowledge of God crushes our pride Realigns our worship and comforts our heart. Crushes our pride, realigns our worship, and comforts our heart. These profound realities concerning the perfect knowledge of God should do those three things. It should first help us to correct our perspective about ourselves in relation to, to God. These are pride crushing truths to consider. So here's what I'll tell you. Contrary to popular belief, this world and this life is not about us. This is what this knowledge of God does. When you read Isaiah 40, and you read other sections I could have read, you read the majesty and the power and the wonder of our God who names all of the stars of creation, who needs no information or knowledge from anyone, who has perfect knowledge of before creation and, and all of human history and the culmination of creation, He knows it all. That God, when we stand in awe of who our God is, it helps us to see who we are and it aligns our perspective concerning our life. And it runs, hear me, completely countercultural to the view that life is about you. If you live any length of time in American, Western culture, you have come to believe, or at least tempted to believe, that life revolves around you, your desires, your wants, your dreams, that this life is about you fulfilling your dreams and becoming the best you that you can possibly be. When actually, as a believer, and as a non-believer, the opposite of that is what is true. That all of life, Censors around this high and holy and awesome and powerful view of the God of creation so that we can live our life in a way that magnifies his name and his glory. That's why we exist. This view of God crushes the pride of man that is developed in us when we live in a society that wants to make everything in the society about us, about Instant knowledge, instant gratification, no waiting for anything that's good. I want what I want now, and I can get it when I want it now. It's cry crushing. Psalms 8 says this listen, listen to this, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look, listen, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, and I read Isaiah 40 and the weightiness of who you are, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him? Wow. When we have a proper view of who our God is, it crushes our pride and it realigns our understanding and perspective about who God is and what our place is in this life. Our place in this life is to simply put on display the majesty and the glory of God for all to see. So that others can gaze at his glory and worship Christ in spirit and in truth as we have been blessed to be able to worship him. It crushes our pride. It realigns our understanding of our relationship to the God of creation. And here's how it realigns our worship. It centers our worship on a humble adoration before our God. So much of the music that is written and sung in churches and popular music is so centered on us and not on God. When we understand who God is, his power and his majesty, we'll stop singing songs that are about us and we'll sing songs that are about him. When we come to understand who he is, it humbles us in worship. And we don't want to spend our time singing songs that are about us and what we desire and what we want. And we don't want to spend time singing songs of the majesty and the power and the glory of our God. And what he has done and what he has accomplished about his cross, about his resurrection, about justification, about the fact that he has justified us before a holy God. We want to sing the deep, wonderful truths of God and His gospel. It crushes our pride. It realigns our worship. And here's the last thing it does it comforts our heart. The perfect knowledge of God comforts our heart. Comfort for God's people. You remember that lengthy section I just read in Isaiah 40? Let me read it again, in case you forgot <laughs> so let me give you, let me give you a little background of those of these of this section in isaiah chapters one through thirty nine of isaiah the prophet Isaiah addresses Judah in her present situation under isaiah 's ministry chapters one through thirty nine chapter forty kicks off a prophecy that addresses Judah as though they are in Babylonian captivity that is to come. Think about that just for a second. Let's process process this and think about it. God writes a prophecy through his prophet Isaiah. And starting in chapter 40, 80 years, 80 years in advance of this prophecy in chapter 40, 80 years in advance before they go into Babylonian captivity, God's people goes goes into Babylonian captivity starting in chapter 40. God speaks through his prophet and says, I want you to know something about who I am. Because captivity is coming. Captivity is coming. So the purpose of this is comfort. Listen to the first verses of Isaiah 40. Listen to what it starts off with. 80 years before captivity is coming. The prophet says, the Lord says, comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, for her war, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. Go on up to a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, and he will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. This is so powerful. The God of creation, the God with perfect knowledge, the God that knows that 80 years after this is written, the people he he is writing to, his people are going to go into Babylonian captivity. And he is saying, he's saying to them, tell Judah, tell my people that I will be like a shepherd to them. I will tend them. I will care for them. I will tend my flock like a shepherd. Tell them. In the midst of their captivity, tell them that I will be like a shepherd. And because of the perfect knowledge of God, 80 years before the captivity even comes, he prophesies to them to tell them who he is and what he will do for them. I don't know if you're as impacted about that as I am. That is so profound. Let that sit in on you. Wow. You know what that tells us here today? Tells us here today the God of creation knows the, cap- the, the captivity that's coming for me. He knows the captivity that's coming for you. He knows the struggles, the pain, the fears, the doubts, the sickness, the tragedy. The pain, it's coming. He knows it's coming. And just like he prophesies through the prophet Isaiah and Isaiah 40, 80 years before the captivity is actually gonna come to his people and he describes who he is. He says, I want you to know that I will shepherd you. I will tend you like a shepherd and I want you to know who I am. I want you to know that I have perfect knowledge. I want you to know that I am learning nothing about anything, that this is who I am as your God and I will be with you. In preparation for the captivity, the God of creation looks at his people and says, I will be with you in the middle of your captivity. This is our God. And this view of the perfect knowledge of God comforts our heart. Some of us may look at that and say, I don't get it and I don't like it. Why would God try to comfort me 80 years before my pain? Why would he seek to comfort me six months before the diagnosis? Why would he seek to try to comfort me before I go through my trials? Because God, the God of perfect knowledge, wants you to know. Wants us to know no matter what we go through. Because he needs no one to give him information and knowledge. He wants us to know before we walk through whatever we're going to walk through. That he is with us from the beginning and the middle and the end of all that we walk through. He is the God that sustains. He is the God that comforts. He is the God that gives strength. Later in Isaiah 40, it says... That even young men grow weary and faint and lack strength. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. God's perfect knowledge. He knows what is in man. He needs no one to inform him about anything. Our God is ruling and reigning over all creation. This is our What does this knowledge do in my life and your life? It reminds me. What does this knowledge of God's perfect knowledge do in my life? It reminds me that no matter what captivity may come my way or may be coming my way, I am comforted by the reminder of who my God is. It also reminds me that my life is not my own, my future is not in my hands. My security does not come from man. I don't have hope or lack hope because of what does or does not happen at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. The government does not control my destiny. That is so comforting to know. This is what this knowledge helps us with. We get so caught up in what is happening or not happening in politics and in government and in situations in our society and around the world. And we need to be reminded in preparation. God is letting us know through his word that no matter what situations may come. It's not the president. It's not the government. It's not the oil field. It's not the stock market. It's not my retirement account. My destiny is in the hands of the God of creation who is in charge of everything. God is not sitting on his throne right now trying to figure out what his next move is now that Vladimir Putin has made his move. It's not God. God is not playing a game, a cosmic game of chess, waiting for moves and counter moves. My life rests and your life rests securely in the hands of a God who knows perfectly everything that has happened or ever will happen in me or to me. And that knowledge crushes my pride. It informs my worship and it comforts my heart to know that my future is in his hands. My future is in the hands of a God who is working everything according to the counsel of his will. John 2. Let's read that text again that we started with. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Amen? Will you pray with me today? Thank you, Lord, for planting the seeds in our our life, watering our soul. Thank you for this message, Lord. Thank you for being a perfect creator that loves us, that completely loves us. Lord, thank you for your perfect love your perfect miracle in Jesus Christ. Thank you for knowing our hearts, all what's inside of us. Father God, may this word pierce our hearts, pierce our minds. May we produce good fruit, Father God. We pray for submission, meditation on this perfect message that, I mean, this message that was given to us of your perfect knowledge. Father God, we may we trust you, grow spiritually through this message. We need you, Lord. May we seek you this week so we can proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, the death and the burial and the resurrection of him. Help us through this Holy Spirit. Help align us through your perspective so we can bring honor to your name. And we do this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Love you, living word. Have a good day. Week.